Hey everyone, I'm Amadal Yakber, and this is See Something Say Something. Welcome to our second annual gin episode. We stupidly got the Ouija board and we asked it some questions and it somehow came up with a phone number. But the next day, we went up there and the furniture was put back in the exact same way. Last year, we like convened a panel to talk about gins and tell some stories. This year, we're going to be talking about gins and pop culture with G. Willow Wilson. Ghost stories in Egypt are typically about the person dying and the gin becoming confused. And with Abed Anwar about the American gods gin sex scene. It, like one thing would be cool is like if gins had the same kind of representation that like Lucifer or Satan has throughout like media where it's like there's been several different renditions of what Lucifer can be or can't be. But also we're going to be peppering the episode with little real life gin stories from people around the BuzzFeed offices. Um, let's start with this story from Elamine Abdul Mahmoud coming from Sudan. When I was little, my family had a farm and it was a special place to me. But this farm, wonderful as it was, was terrifying at night. That might have something to do with the fact that the farm is between the Nile and a graveyard. And one day, as we were pulling up to the farm, I saw a fire that was the size of a person. That is to say, a fire that was exactly the size of a human being from far away in the farmhouse. And casually, I watched this fire take a few steps to the left while nothing else caught on fire and then vanished. You might say that I have an overactive imagination as a 10-year-old. I would say you are incorrect because I remember it incredibly vividly. I told my mom, I told my dad, and one of them casually mentioned that I might have seen a djinn. So joining me today is G. Willow Wilson. She's an award-winning author of novels, memoir, and comic books. She's currently writing Ms. Marvel for Marvel Comics, which stars Kamala Khan, a Pakistani-American shape-shifting heroine from New Jersey, and who's also famously known as Marvel's first headlining Muslim character. Welcome to the show, Willow. Thanks for having me. I'm so geeked as a comic, you know, this show is about Muslim identity, but as a comic book fan, I am just so geeked to have someone who works in <laughs> comics on the show. Um, but also, I'm a fan of your other work as well. So I'm really excited well, to Thank you. Talk, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. To talk gin with you, because <laughs> I know that's a big interest <laughs> of yours. So in addition to Ms. Marvel, you've also written a few uh, novels and books, uh, The Butterfly Mosque, which is about your conversion, and Alif the Unseen in Cairo, which prominently feature jinn characters in mythos. So when did you first learn about jinn? You know, that's a question with a kind of a complicated answer. I, I first learned of jinn as they appear in Islam through reading the Quran and, uh, and and sort of my own research that I had been doing as in my late teens, when I was sort of becoming acquainted with the religion. And I really had not grasped prior to that, that the jinn were a religious 
entity as well as just sort of being this like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mythological, cute blue guys who pop out of lamps and that <laughs> kind of thing. So it was it was really interesting to me to see the jinn incorporated into a belief system. And that led me to kind of research different jinn stories and how the jinn were portrayed in their original form in the mythology of the Islamic world, as opposed to the kind of watered down bastardized, I hope I can say that word, yes, version <laughs> I'd, uh, you know, that I'd had growing up in the United States. In our first Jinn episode, we talked about, obviously, the genie in the lamp is the, mm-hmm. uh, the common trope that people talk about. Um, mm-hmm. How do you describe Jinns to people who might not otherwise understand it? Because you've done a lot of like sort of translating the Jinn to an American audience in your work. In a, mm-hmm. in a more complex fashion. So what I try to do in my own work is to portray the jinn as a civilization, because as they're described in the Quran and in the Al-Layla and in all of the different sort of interwoven mythologies of the Muslim world, they're portrayed as a complete species, a self-conscious, self-aware species that sort right. of predates our own and lives in a world that intersects with our own in some interesting ways, but then also diverges from it. They're hidden, but they're quite real in the same way that we are. Although, you know, in the mythology, they're sort of made of fire, smokeless fire, whereas we are made from mud or dirt or earth or clay or however you interpret that. And that to me is is very interesting from a storytelling perspective, because it creates little paradoxes that are very, very useful, I think, when you're talking about fantasy. Uh, In other words, the jinn are sort of part of our world and yet not of our world. And when we run across them, it's usually because something has gone wrong. And, uh, And that's very, very interesting to me as a writer. I, as I recall, the the root for jinn. I know you're like a big language uh, studier of language. The word jinn <laughs> actually amateur language geek. Amateur same. Geek. <laughs> I mean, same. It's 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 the most fun way to be because then you don't have to deal with like things like. And you've got plausible deniability. <laughs> yeah. Am I correct that the word jinn actually does come from the word hidden? Like it, the hidden. root. Yeah. Yeah, comes <laughs> from that. But I think what's also fascinating about them is, despite this hiddenness, they also are. In the most standard tellings, they're one of the rare creatures in God's creation that has free will, like humans. They can choose Mm -hmm. to be good or evil, and that's really fascinating for something you can't see. Exactly. So have you ever encountered one? (laughs) (laughs) We've talked to a lot of people who have. That's a dangerous (laughs) question. Well, people say that when you talk about them, they start collecting in your midst. stories come out, yeah. Yeah. So I will say this. I mean, I I was one of those kids who growing up was slightly haunted. In a good way or a bad way? I would would say in a good way or at least in a neutral way. I mean, not not in a sort of like scary, psychologically terrifying or unbalancing sort of a way. Um, But yeah, you know, I especially when I started writing would have these very interesting sort of You know, I hesitate to call them encounters, Um, vivid, imaginary encounters. Let's put it that Mm. way. The first one that I ever had happened actually when I was kind of writing what would eventually become Cairo, that first graphic novel that I wrote. I was uh, about to move to Egypt. I was, uh, you know, still living at home with my parents. 
this is, this was when I was in college and I had this very small room in which I had a large desk, too large for the room and a bed. And in order to get into bed, I had to push the desk chair all the way under the desk because there wasn't enough room for me to get it in and out otherwise. Mm -hmm. So one night, right, I, I'd gone to sleep and I sort of half woke because I thought I'd heard somebody like clearing their throat or moving or something. And I turned my head and there in my desk chair, staring at me, was this guy, this man with long kind of scraggly hair and these extremely intense eyes. And he was sort of looking and looking. And I sat straight up in bed and screamed <laughs> as one might and turned on the light. And naturally, I mean, you know how the story ends. There was nothing there. Right. Uh, of course. But the interesting thing was, and the reason why this stuck with me in a way that some of the dreams in it that I'd had as, as a younger kid had not, was because that chair, which I'd had to push all the way under the desk in order to get into bed, had been pulled out and was facing oh the bed. Oh, my God. No. Uh, That's so yeah, spooky. That, oh, my God. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. It was interesting <laughs> to have that experience while writing that book because, of course, you know, when you have conversations with um, especially conservative Muslims, they'll be like, aren't you afraid of writing about jinn? Aren't right. you afraid that something is going to happen? And this is exactly what they mean <laughs> when they're talking about that. I feel like one thing that when I hear jinn stories, there might be like like what you have sort of told us is like something where like there's like like a physical change enough that it's suspicious. But I feel like what, right. what unites a gin, a gin story for a lot of people is this feeling that your reality has changed a little bit. Like something yeah. has pierced your the veil of whatever mm -hmm. you, you experience. Is that how you felt in that moment as well? Yeah, it, it really kind of was. It was very unsettling. And I don't necessarily mean that in a scary way, although it was pretty terrifying, but more like exactly what you said, that the assumptions that you might have made about your own reality are challenged in some way. And you then have to decide how you're going to respond to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, terror, probably, yeah, in the, in the terror, moment. Yeah, fear, which is a healthy response. You know, we're, we're meant to be scared of the jinn. That, that fear that we feel is, in most traditions, there to protect us and to protect them, for right. that matter, because we're really not meant to interact in any kind of long-term way. And when we pass each other, the general feeling is, is that we should kind of move on and not focus on it. <laughs> right. And, and I have to say, once I started writing Aleph, uh, in whom Vikram, a jinn character who's, who's sort of very, very loosely based on a story from the Panchatantra about King Vikram and the vampire, I saw him or something like him oh. several times in similar circumstances oh, oh my God, while writing that book. Yeah. <laughs> Vikram is based on a real jinn? <laughs> well, I think the funny thing is, <laughs> in Egypt, I don't know if this That's is true amazing. throughout the Muslim world or if this is just an Egyptian thing, but in Egypt, it's believed that we sort of all have jinn familiars, not, not exactly doubles or, or spirit companions or something that formal, but that we have one jinn, jinni, to whom we are connected specifically huh. Huh. in their world. And there's kind of a link between us. And so ghost stories in Egypt are typically about the person dying and the jinn becoming confused and then oh. wandering for a little while in the world. And so I've often wondered if that 
entity who keeps showing up if he's sort of my dude <laughs> in, in, in the hidden world because he does show up every so often. So I think one thing that is fascinating about Vikram is that they're not like sp- spooky in that same way. I don't want to say friendly because obviously like Vikram is like a little like <laughs> a little a, a little creepy. A yeah. little creepy. <laughs> you don't haven't fully pulled back from the spooky nature of it, but to to me it seems like you have found a way to like understand Jin in a way that they're not as scary to, when you write them. And was that an intentional thing to like make them more? You think like a community, like portray them as a community. Yeah, that was part of it, because a lot of the stories that I enjoy the most that are sort of outgrowths of that Islamic tradition surrounding the jinn are about jinn as a civilization and all of the subcategories of jinn, you know, like the ghul and the afrit and the merid and all of these, you know, different interesting categorizations of jinn and demons and, and, and the way that those two things are not the same but can intersect. And that sort of moral ambivalence that you touched on, the idea that they can be good or bad or neither or both at once. There's, of course, the wonderful story about the Prophet Muhammad going into the realm of the jinn and preaching to them there. So technically, there would be jinn sahaba <laughs> you know, in the realm of the jinn. I, I don't um, believe I know that story, actually. Or maybe it's I, something I, I've, I've forgotten from Sunday school. You know, school. it's because I was taught about the religion in Egypt, in that very specific cultural context from people who had been trained at Azhar and those, you know, very Egyptian institutions, I'm never sure if what I have been told is is from sort of the larger, mm-hmm. you know, sort of Sunni Islamic right. tradition, or if it's sort of like a story that may or may not have roots necessarily in that tradition that is specific to Egypt. Like, right. I can't, I don't always know. And sometimes it takes me years or, or, you know, a decade to find out like, oh, this, this thing that you thought was just sort of part of the Sunnah is in fact, like just an Egyptian right. tradition. <laughs> Which I think a lot of Muslims all over the world experience. I mean, it's I've a problem. Yeah. Talk, <laughs> talked so many times with Pakistanis about how jinn are real, but we have this other folkloric creature called a bhut, which is like mm-hmm. a ghost. Maybe you've heard of it. And everyone is very clear. Bhut are not real, right? Like the jinn are the, are the real thing. <laughs> Those um, are the real ones. These are not the real ones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I think like there is a curiosity, right, about what is a jinn experience. And yeah, yeah. I think part of like the conclusion that you seem to draw on a lot of your work is that like it's not really fully for us to ever know. Absolutely. Yeah. And and in earlier iterations of Aleph, especially, I had really dialed that stuff back so that you were constantly guessing okay, are these are these creatures, you know, Vikram and his sister, are they are they really supernatural? Or is our perception of them somehow just warped? And my first readers, you know, before it hit publication, found that very unsatisfying. <laughs> and they were like, no, you know, commit, commit to the genie stuff. I read it as sort of also like a metaphor for belief and faith in it, the way it mm-hmm. often operates in Islam, that there are a lot of unknowable things that humanity will never understand. And that's belief. And that's not very satisfying for a secular point of view. So I'm not mm-hmm. surprised that your readers didn't enjoy that. But it, it to me, <laughs> it to me was like, I loved reading that because it felt like a representation of fiction of this concept that has helped me with like my understanding of faith that like, it's not going to have all the answers for me. It's just mm-hmm. like, a way of understanding that there are greater things beyond you that you can't quite control. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, but actually, I wanted to come back to the, these classifications of jinn that you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that I see all the time in pop culture, this idea of the ifrit and the ghul. 
but mm-hmm. I have actually never encountered it in any of my amateur studying of Islamic texts. Not that like jinns were, were like a specific thing I've done a lot of research in, but where do these classifications come from? And I like finally just read Cairo after I heard you were coming on the show. And there was, <laughs> uh, uh, you mentioned the Junain too, which is like a, a half gin. And I had never heard of that either. And I Googled it. I totally made that one up. That's, okay. that's my own made up thing. Can I tell you that I Googled that and there's people out there that think half gin, half humans are lizard people that like. <laughs> that is amazing. Lizard people are 50% gin. And that, 50% gin. This and is legit. That's good to know that that was not based on any. any, so, any no, anything. it's not. It's not. It was just convenient for the story. And in fact, I, I did more in-depth research after I wrote Cairo about the fic of gin, because there is interesting and, and extensive scholarly writing dating back to the very early centuries of Islam about the proper interaction between jinn and humankind. Mm. In other words, is it halal for jinn and men to marry? Right. If so, how does that work? (laughs) Um, If a man marries a jinn woman, is he expected to provide her with bones and viscera to eat? even though that's haram for humans to eat. I mean, like, they're all of oh these... Oh, my God. You mean, oh, my God, it's amazing. that's what amazing. Well, according to the scholar who was writing up this fatwa about, you know, whether or not it's halal to marry jinn and what you owe them when you marry them. Oh, my God. Yes, in, in his understanding, a jinn, or at least this particular jinn woman, would eat bones and sort of, you know, guts. <laughs> wow. So what about those other classifications like Ifrit and Murid? I'm pretty sure Afrit are mentioned in the Quran, but I think they're the only one. Now I like want to Google it. I'm seriously here on my computer. Um, <laughs> yes, the Ifrit is mentioned in the Quran. Yes, it is. Uh, yes, in Surah An-Naml, the, in the story of Solomon. They, they worked for Solomon. Because <laughs> Solomon could command the jinn. That was one of his miracles, I guess. Apparently there's also a hadith in Bukhari, about an Afrit trying to interrupt the prayers of the Prophet Muhammad. Oh, boy. So there's your other reference. But I don't think like the Merid are, and I'm not sure about ghouls or ghul, as you know, they would be called in Arabic. You know, I think those came later. And I think especially in the case of the Merid may have been a mishmash of various cultural influences, right. you know, based on something that may have existed right. before. Now I'm looking up ghoul too. <laughs> <laughs> Learning by doing. I, I have, yeah, I truly have not seen a good answer to that. We will need to do some research, I guess. Here's another side note. I, one of my favorite moments in Elephant Scene was how uh, one of the jinns mentions that they're attracted to empty places and a lot of them like Detroit. <laughs> As a Michigander, I was like, I need to know more. That makes perfect sense. This is a huge, huge thing in Egypt when I was living there. There were all kinds of stories about uh, the channels of the Nile, for example, and the you know, the, the channels that had been dug to irrigate the fields and you shouldn't go near those at night because they were considered places that were somewhat haunted, ditto to burial grounds, abandoned buildings. And so the general sense was that places that have been abandoned by humans are attractive right. to jinn and places where there has been suffering are attractive to jinn. I feel like it's just so, it's so, there's so many different ways to look at them. Mm-hmm. They can really fill so many different gaps in understanding for a lot of people. They occupy that role. Mm-hmm. One one argument that I really thought was like, 
very um, useful in All of the Unseen was this idea that it's easy to train yourself not to see them, but what's mm-hmm. more difficult is training yourself and immersing yourself in a language that allows you to see them. And I feel like people are generally skeptical of that, but mm-hmm. I feel like for a Muslim person, that's like a fascinating concept, especially because we are often trained also like to fear jinns. Um, yeah. So where did you first get that idea from? When I was in, uh, you know, my late teens and my early 20s and, you know, I, I converted at 20 and kind of essentially ran away to Egypt and was learning Islam in a place where belief in the unseen in a literal, non-metaphorical way is still very much alive and vibrant and part of the religion. And so these ideas really first came to me as part and parcel of Islam. And, uh, you know, it was taken for granted that the jinn were quite real and that we just couldn't see them. And, and that learning that etiquette, the etiquette of the unseen, was very, very much part of my religious education. Um, we may be losing that in the next couple of generations. And, and, you know, that's kind of sad. And so when I write and when I write these stories, I, I kind of hope that in some way we can preserve that part of religion, that, that sort of wide-eyed wonder at the unseen that, uh, you know, that may be leaving us. That's a wonderful summary of why jinns should still matter to us and why we're doing <laughs> yeah, this episode. Why the jinns still matter, yes. <laughs> um, you know, obviously this is a jinn episode, but I have to ask you about Ms. Marvel because I'm a huge fan. Um, so you developed Ms. Marvel in collaboration with Sana Amanat as well mm-hmm. as the artist Adrian Alfona. I think what's fascinating to me about Ms. Marvel is that how authentically you guys have represented the Pakistani American experience, <laughs> um, despite you not being Pakistani yourself um, yeah. or even an immigrant, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I read this thing and I swear to God, every single trade that I read, I read it in the trades. Like I get, there's one moment where like, I just, I'm, I almost well up with tears because I feel so seen, so seen. She's a nerd. She's, you know, cares. She has like a relationship uh, of as immigrants children do to her parents of that's very complex and mm. meaningful and not often represented. So how did you guys go about developing this character? How did you do this right when so many people are do it so wrong? You know, you know, it's a, it was a very long development process. This, this series spent, my God, it must've been a solid 18 months wow. in development before the actual first physical issue hit stands. She had no background. It was, you know, it was not a sure thing that she would be Pakistani American. Right. And, you know, I got to the point where I was like, Sana, the whole reason that this book is happening is because the stories that you've been telling mm. uh, about your own childhood have sort of inspired this this series. So why are we overthinking this? Let's let's just make her Pakistani American. But also, I felt comfortable enough to take on that particular challenge because. After I moved back here to the United States from Egypt in, let's see, my late 20s, it was really the Pakistani-American community who taught me how to be an American Muslim, Oh right. which I thought was going to be an intuitive process. I was like, I'm Muslim. I'm American. I'm an American Muslim. What's hard about that? How wrong I was. You know, Mm. I I came back. I had huge reentry shock. I spent the first year and a half back in the United States being horribly depressed, more depressed than I'd ever been in my life. And really, the people who pulled me out of that uh, were by and large uh, Desi Muslims, not entirely Pakistani, uh, but also Indian and Bangladeshi, simply because 
the community leaders and, and, and sort of the heart of the immigrant Muslim community in Seattle, where I was living, was Desi. When you're having, like, you're not 100% sure about, like, the way Pakistani Americans might understand or, or, or do word, do you call up your, like, faux Pakistani parents to consult like I do? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I totally do. Sana's parents have, have sort of low-key adopted me. Oh, that's uh, so sweet. <laughs> so, yeah, I do, you know, and so I'll ask, like, okay, if you were to do this thing and mess up in this way, would your mother theoretically call you X, Y, Z, or is that too strong? And they'd be like, no, 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 here's exactly what she'd say. Well, that's what's fascinating about it, because even those words seem like so accurate to me. You know, that's, <laughs> there's so many times where I see people praying on TV and they're saying like Al-Fatiha while they're going into Sajda. Oh my God, and I'm it's like, like total nonsense. It's yeah. so, but whereas <laughs> you you guys have like really refined it to the, the nuance is so there that even the way they speak is so accurate to how a Pakistani parent would speak. You know, I, I know after having been back in the US for 10 years, I have habits like that that are Daisy that I don't know mm. are Daisy. Like literally two weeks ago, I found out that folding over the corner of your prayer mat when you're done praying. So Daisy. And it was related to the jinn. It was, I was going to say. Like a, so that shaitan doesn't, you know, pray on it or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought, isn't that related to the jinn? Yeah, wow. It is. It totally is. It's so funny. And I had no idea. I just do it automatically. And I could not tell you why. So before we go, I just wanted to say that I think it's such an amazing thing that you've accomplished that... You can go to cons and you'll see men and women of all different types of backgrounds, especially women, dressing up as this young Pakistani American heroine. And it's touched so many people's lives. It's gotten people into comics who wouldn't have otherwise been into it. And that is a huge achievement. Anyhow, uh, where can people find you in your work? Uh, I am on Twitter at GWillowWilson. And you can find out more at GWillowWilson.com. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you know, if you have any spooky gin stories, please send them our way because we love them at the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. So this next one comes from Ikran Dahir and is in the UK. Six years ago, we moved houses and everything was fine until we stupidly got the Ouija board and we asked it some questions and it somehow came up with a phone number. We called the phone number. <laughs> and I don't remember what the name was, but the name, the board gave us matched the person. So we hung up and then a few days later, my mom heard a voice calling her name from downstairs. So she thought it was my dad. So she went downstairs, but it was a white shape. And we called an imam. And we thought that got rid of it, but it didn't. And then it just kept happening with all of us. We kept hearing our name coming from downstairs, even though there was no one downstairs. And so we moved. <laughs> so Ajin made headlines this year for a groundbreaking story in the TV show American Gods which featured a sex scene between a human Muslim man and a jinn. Before we go on, though, I just want to say that there are lots of stories in the Muslim world of jinns and humans having sex. And it's halal if you're married, I guess. Anyhow, uh, we thought this was a perfect time to do another edition of Do Better and talk about how American gods moved the representation of jinns a little bit past the genie in the bottle trope. 
So I've invited on our resident salty amateur film critic, Abid Anwar from BuzzFeed. Hey. <laughs> Literally just chewing gum at, in the middle of this thing. Doesn't give a shit I, at all. I'm sorry, I'm rubble. So the gin I'm talking about is the gin from American Gods. Um, what can you tell us about American Gods, Abid? It's a show based on a book by Neil Gaiman, also titled American Gods. It's about all these old school gods based on like a mix of like Greek, Nordic, Hindu, Muslim, all sorts of gods fighting against like the new gods who are technology. There's a lot of blood, (laughs) a lot lot of of sex. Yeah, I mean everything's very stylish, and there's a lot of slow mo, a lot of slow mo to the point where it just half the episode is slow mo. So every episode they do one or two segments called Somewhere in America. Mm-hmm. So the Jin, he has his own arc kind mm-hmm. of in episode three where he shows up with this guy, Salim. Mm-hmm. Salim is like a, a, bi- a businessman. And yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a salesman. Why are you smiling? A salesman is naked in America without a smile. His first intro is him waiting to meet someone sitting in a waiting room right. and being ignored the entire time. It's 11.35. My appointment was for 11. Mr. Blanding knows you're here. So he leaves, and it's raining, and he gets into it. He decides to take a cab back to his hotel, and his driver is another Arab guy. Um, and they start bonding. I've been driving this Allah Forsaken taxi for 30 hours. Which, by it's the way, much. does anyone say Allah Forsaken? I spent the day waiting to see a man who will not see me. He's in a thick sweater and thick glasses. You can't extremely, see his eyes. Extremely stylish sweater, might I add. Very stylish, very h H&M, and I love you know. that sweater so much. <laughs> I want him so bad. SS 1718, you know, I, I'm going to wear it. <laughs> it's actually a very often sweater now that I think about it. <laughs> um, they're stuck in traffic. He starts dozing off. Salim reaches over to the cab driver and t- touches him. Yeah. And gets transported to the desert for a moment. Right. And then the guy wakes up, and his glasses have fallen off. When he opens them up, there's, like, some honestly pretty questionable CGI of, like, flames coming out of his eyes. Are there many jinn in New York? No. They know nothing about my people here. They think all we do is grant wishes. It's like a grant a wish. Do you think I would be driving a cab? They, like, sort of, like, hold hands for a sec as two people who are, like, drifting in the city. And uh, Salim gets out of the cab and is like, I'm in room 318. They go up into the elevator and they're flirting, you know, they're holding hands. Uh, They're just bonding slowly. And, you know, they get to the room and what happens, Ovid? Um, I mean, they have sex, you know, they have sex. That's it. Like straight up. I mean, it's like a very nice, passionate scene. So they're in the desert again and their skin is painted black. And as the jinn climaxes, he fills Salim with fire. It cuts to the next morning and Salim realizes the jinn has taken all of his stuff. And what he does is he puts on the jinn sweater, H&M SS 17, 18 <laughs> season. Um, yeah, so he puts on the sweater, he takes his glasses, he goes outside, he goes in his cab and he, see, and he looks in the mirror and he's basically like, I do not grant wishes. Essentially, they trade identities, whereas the jinn becomes Salim, Salim becomes the jinn without actually becoming a jinn. But he doesn't seem upset about it because it's... He seems like he's liberated from his life. Right, right, exactly. The job that he didn't like. Yeah. So this scene was universally lauded for being, like, a very well shot and, like, sort of unusual scene in its depiction of 
met two men having sex on TV. Um, but it was also kind of exciting because there is a lot of queer subtext in Islamic history that is overlooked. And I think from reading Neil Gaiman's interview about this, like he wanted to highlight that and it seemed like an interesting space to do it. Um, but then one thing that really turned me off is I read a statement by one of the show creators, Brian Fuller, um, that I'm going to read now. To portray Salim and the Jinn in a way that's sex positive for a gay man who comes from a country where homosexuality is punishable by death and you can be thrown off of a rooftop. It was very important for me to look at Salim's story as a gay man from the Middle East whose sexual experience was probably relegated to back alley blowjobs and didn't have an intimate personal sexual experience. And then later on, he goes on to talk about how he made the scene more sensual than it is in the books. But the problem with that first part is that in Oman... It is illegal to be gay, but it is not punishable by death. Right. That doesn't really bleed into the scene, but it did give me a lot of pause about why they were doing this. Because it's just so common that the Muslim world is conflated into one thing, that there's one type of attitude towards homosexuality, when it varies by country and by culture. And it's something they could have easily researched or hired a cultural consultant or something like that. Right. Um, and I really liked the character's arc together. You yeah. know that he has experienced a society and community before. Right. And then he's come to America and his dreams were dashed and he doesn't really have like a sense of what his purpose is really. Right. He's lonely. He's lonely. He's lonely. And it's it's natural for a jinn to be lonely in some ways because they are like more isolated creatures. They yeah. like to be in emptiness. Right. And in a big city, you could imagine why a jinn would be lonely because they're so used to like, I don't know. I mean, who isn't space. lonely in, uh, in New, York. New York, right? <laughs> Everyone's lonely in New York. Even people that aren't in relationships are lonely in New York. That's yeah. it's like the New York thing. I was really just bothered by the tiny little oriental touches, which could have been cut out like the oud music and the desert scenes. It just doesn't really fit with this idea of like immigrants in New York. So I guess the desert thing sort of makes sense within the show itself because Fuller tends to use a lot of like wide nature shots. Like uh-huh. he goes, there's a lot of scenes that take place in the woods randomly. Like they'll show up in the woods like mm-hmm. with other like with animals just walking around or... um I just don't really like American Gods that much either. So that's I don't either. I, I, for me, it was actually the best episode so far of the three I've watched. Um, it's like a show that makes me respect editors and producers more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? that show needs an editor so bad. Yeah, usually I'm like, yeah, please, let's let, let the fucking director do whatever the hell they want to do, you know? Like, let yeah. the director create their work and make it the way they want to make it um, yeah. and, like, set the fuck out the way. But yeah. in a show like this, I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe Brian Fuller is better for, like, regular, like, basic network TV, you know, versus cable TV. Right. Um, where he has more people just saying, you know, hold on. But at the same time, Pull again, back a little bit, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we get it. Like, you like slow-mo, but... <laughs> shit out, you know. But yeah, I, I like I I generally did like the episode. It was I didn't think there was anything wrong with it, and like the comments that they made outside of the show are weird. Oftentimes, anytime like liberal white people speak on things that they're not super familiar with, it's always just bad, you know. Like as far as gyms have been portrayed throughout Western media, pretty oh, good, yeah, pretty good, you absolutely, know, pretty pretty good uh, portrayal. Like person wasn't like necessarily evil. Also, the American gods gods are, like, they're really, like, Neil Gaimanized versions of the gods. Yeah, anyway. Right. It, like, one thing would be cool is, like, if jinns had the same kind of representation that, like, Lucifer or Satan has throughout, like, media, where it's, like, there's been several different renditions of what Lucifer can be or can't be. In terms of everything, just, like, how Lucifer looks, 
gender, sexuality, everything. Like mm-hmm. Lucifer's given a lot of that where jinns generally get regulated to just like quick one arc stories. Like hell, I would watch a fucking show about a jinn just going wild and like <laughs> downtown Los Angeles <laughs> creating some mischief. Uh, but you'd probably never really get that. You know, at best we'll get like that 2000 and what, 18 Aladdin, live action Aladdin oh, God. <laughs> with Will Smith. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one, one cool thing is that um, it wasn't a one-sided portrayal where it's like, okay, Salim's the point of view and then the jinn is basically there to help him like get to where he needs to go or find some right. kind of fulfillment. Like it's fair to say the jinn got its own fulfillment or at least yeah. got to represent its side of the point of view. Um, whereas like, you know, generally like the wish thing or just like the mischief thing where it's like Jin just shows up to do things for the sake of doing it. Um, so it was kind of interesting to see that. This is a Jin who's been, you know, living a shitty life in America, which is like one of the, one of the things I do like. I want to like, see more sh- Jins with shitty lives. <laughs> you do? Yeah, they're just like people, right? You they want- can't all be like all powerful. <laughs> so you want to see like the girls' version of Jin? <laughs> <laughs> Four yes. gens living in Williamsburg, just like trying to make it. Trying to whisper <laughs> in the ear of some hipsters <laughs> so that they bring home some bone broth that they can eat. <laughs> I, I, listen, maybe Adam Driver needs to play a gin. <laughs> <That's, laughs> I would definitely watch Adam Driver as a gin. Yeah, I mean, that would be fun. Maybe you could just do, like, Sex in the City with gins. Or, like, a gin family comedy, right? Like, mm. gins have families. You know, they're a community, right? Yeah. As uh, I just learned. Um, <laughs> uh, Although, knowing, knowing ABC, they'd probably do something like Fresh Out the Bottle, you know? <laughs> just like... <laughs> fresh Out the Lamp. <laughs> oh, man. There's also like a thriller. You could have like a gin buddy cop, like like investigative buddy cop. <laughs> yeah. You know, like where like the gin is like helping investigate the supernatural elements. Right. And like the cop is like you know it's like the jaded gin who takes on the rookie gin. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking a human and gin combo, okay. like where they're like like the gin, like the human helps the gin solve some things in the gin world that the gin can't do by himself, and the gin helps the human with supernatural crimes in this world. You I know really what I mean? that's like the plot of the new Will Smith movie that Netflix produced. Which is, I, what movie a, is that? I don't know if it's a gin, but I think um, it's basically Will Smith, human, right? Yeah. Has a partner who's not human. He's like a supernatural creature, and he helps Will Smith investigate like supernatural beings. Like He's a gin. It's like Grimm, but with Will Smith. I'm not saying my pitch is a good movie. I'm just <laughs> saying that the gin can be used for more than they have been because uh, they're people just like us. Just. Think of a... Ahmed wants gin sex in the city. That's what he wants, okay? <laughs> yeah, where are the women gin? Why are all the gin men? That's true. It's fucked up. We need more representation. So just to be clear, what you're saying is sex in the city, gins. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Ifrit Bradshaw. <laughs> this is a nice step forward in gin representation. Uh, American cuts. <laughs> and I, I'm kind of pumped to see a gin in that role, but... I definitely just want less deserts and more more immigrant gins, more sex in the shit city gins. Young gins, twenty five, can't pay rent. They're <laughs> <laughs> living literally in an abandoned <laughs> building, probably <laughs> like in Brooklyn. <laughs> Listening to Robin in the club, like that's the gin. That's the gin we need. All right, Robin. Thank you for coming on. What? How? Where can people follow you and your your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, but I'm not going to tell you my handle. Uh, <laughs> and you can um, find me at H and I'm trying to figure out where the Jin got his sweater from Hell on American yeah. Gods. Hell yeah. So this story comes from Zanab Shah, and it's about her childhood in Lahore. 
There's this house in Lahore which belongs to my extended family and all four brothers that live there with their wives and families, all four of them died under mysterious circumstances. And they died. They all died very, very young. So really, the house is just inhabited by four widows and their kids, who are my cousins, who I hung out with growing up. And it seemed like time and space were just didn't work the same way in this house as they do in the outside world. There was an upstairs section to this house, and... My, my aunt kept saying, don't go up there, don't go up there. She was like, don't go up there. But we were kids and we just wanted to like have another playing area. So we went up there and the furniture was all facing in the wrong direction, like not set up properly and just haphazardly placed. So we rearranged the furniture and we set it up so it could be like a lounge, like we could hang out there. But the next day we went up there and the furniture was put back in the exact same way. And we asked everyone else in the house, we were like, did you go up there? Did you move the furniture? Did you change around? And no one had done it. So, I mean, in conclusion, the only thing you can really conclude is that that house definitely had some jinns living in there. This episode is produced by Eleanor Spookin, Meg Creeper, Megan Boutry, and Alex Screamlin. Additional production support from the Pod Squad and the See Something, Scream Something Brain Trust. Special thanks to Elamine Abdul Mahmoud, Sara Yasin, Rona Akbari, Ikran Dahir, Zanab Shah. Our music is by the Buminas. You can find them at kaminas.mancamp.com. Um, <laughs> you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at RadBrownDads. Send us an email at something at buzzfeed.com and chat with us. Um, I'm Amadol Yakber. Thanks for listening and stay spooky. This man was terrified and left to go outside where he saw someone standing and thinking it was the owner, he told him, you know, I'm so scared. These people, they all have round feet, round hands. And the guy said, feet like these? <laughs> <laughs>